It's October 29th, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. You know, bad things happen when our patients go into the ICU, and it's not always due to the disease. You know, good things happen when we rise from sitting. And guess what? Rheumatologists are setting cardiology straight about hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Which patient characteristics do you rely on to inform your choice of treatment? An exploratory study that looked at Orenzia, Abitacept, and a TNF inhibitor may provide some insights. Don't treat in the dark. Visit orenziadata.com. First, let's begin with a report from Annals of Rheumatic Disease. Baricitinib and long-term safety. You know, I usually don't pay much attention to these sort of reports because they always look good. That's why they publish them. But it's important given the current environment where the jacks are being told you need to have um, a boxed warning for these cardiovascular risks, the DVT risk, and these cancer risks. Well, let's just look at the patients who are entered into long-term safety um, and efficacy studies with RA and baricitinib, and they use different doses in these in these studies. Uh, Thirty-seven, seventy patients, almost four thousand patients, almost fifteen thousand patient years. They report the incidence rates as per one hundred patient years, um, and these numbers are good, meeting expectations, and certainly not falling outside of um, the norm. Serious infection rate of two point six per one hundred patient years. That's really good. Herpes zoster rate of 3 per 100 patient years. That's 30 per 1,000 patient years. Again, that's about double the risk that we see in just RA patients on TNF inhibitors. So, But we've seen that before. It's expected. The MACE, the major adverse cardiovascular event risk, is 0.5. Um, interestingly, if you look at the MACE risk in the same kind of patients who are in the um, 1133 study with Pfizer meaning over the age of 50 with one or more cardiovascular risk factors, the MACE rate went from 0.5 to 0.77 in the first two years, and then after that, settled down to 0.6. I don't know that that's a major risk. The cancer SIR was basically one with a standardized mortality rate of 0.74, meaning lower if you were on these drugs. And the DVT and PE risk um, or VTE risk is 0.5 or 0.4 respectively. Again, these are numbers that are falling in line. So how the Pfizer-Tofacitinib study is going to translate to a risk labeling for the drugs not studied in this population remains to be seen. So some COVID data this week that's kind of interesting. An Israeli study looked at the risk of breakthrough infections in their healthcare workers who were vaccinated. uh, And they looked at almost 1,500 fully vaccinated, usually two of the Moderna, two of the Pfizer, whatever vaccines. They had 39 breakthrough infections for a breakthrough rate of 2.4%. Again, this happened between uh, January and May of 2021. Of those that did have breakthrough infections, most of them were mild um, or asymptomatic, 20%. That would be about like eight or seven or eight that had persistent symptoms that went on for more than six weeks. But in general, they did very well. Nobody was hospitalized. Nobody died. Uh, Those who got the breakthrough infections tended to have lower neutralizing antibodies. So it can occur. 
But if it does occur, you're better off if you've been vaccinated. Um, I found this MMWR report from yesterday, two days ago, really interesting. It looked at the risk of a non-COVID death amongst people who were vaccinated against COVID-19. So number one, we do know, and you should be reporting to everyone you know, that receiving a COVID-19 vaccine is not associated with higher mortality rate. It's in fact not. Um, But when you look at non-COVID deaths, a higher mortality rate from COVID, I should say, when you look at non-COVID deaths, you know, it's actually really quite low, significantly lower. So if you look at the risk of uh, a non-COVID death and after receiving two full doses of the Pfizer um, COVID-19 vaccine, the risk uh, was 0.3, relative risk 0.34, meaning a 66 lower percent lower risk. Moderna 0.3, meaning a 69% lower risk of dying. And Janssen 0.5 of four, what's that? 46% lower. So the idea is that, that getting vaccinated, you know, it may just be a, a surrogate marker for people who are healthier in their thinking. So interesting data. The ACR has published a white paper about the anti-malarial cardiac toxicity story, you know, hydroxychloroquine, plaquenil, and all that cardiac stuff that we want. You know, white papers, what is that? Is that a step up from white pages? A white paper is a position piece, an expert analysis, an official statement without necessarily being a guideline, a recommendation? I don't know. But anyway, um, a lot of uh, people got together and worked on a very nice paper. And the paper reviews basically the rare risks of arrhythmias, conduction abnormalities, cardiomyopathy, the QTC issue and Torsad the point is, uh, numbers are very low, and they did reinforce that there's no evidence that says that we should use uh, routine ECG testing. Obviously, if people have symptoms, or um, or if they have a cardiac history, maybe a baseline EKG, but there's no need for ongoing testing. Um, a nice report about um, short walks in between prolonged sitting. Um, so they tested three different uh, uh, three different scenarios. People had prolonged sitting, not getting up, not doing nothing. Those who had um, 30 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise a day and those who had multiple three-minute episodes of light walking every three minutes. Turns out that the vigorous exercise and the three-minute light walks did very well as far as lowering cytokine levels, IL-1, and increasing IL-1-RA. Uh, improve glucose, C-peptide, and insulin levels, uh, there's a benefit to getting up and walking. Even those people can't get up, don't want to get up. Again, light walking, non-strenuous, three minutes. Every 30 minutes is the smart thing to do. Vasculitis patients who get admitted to the hospital. Uh, There's a study of 83 ANCA-associated vasculitides um, and 44, and these were admitted to the ICU, admitted to the hospital. 44, half of them died in the ICU with the leading causes of death being infection or active vasculitis. Infection first, 61%. Active active vasculitis, 34%. One-third, they died from the disease. Two-thirds, they died from an infection. I often assert that when our patients get admitted to the hospital, they're more likely to be in trouble from not the disease, but the consequences of the disease, meaning age, other comorbidities, drugs and drug complications, etc., Predictors of ICU death were the Apache score and evidence of respiratory failure. 
So this was also seen when you looked at lupus patients. So when lupus patients go into, um, or when all rheumatic patients go into the ICU, you know, it can be for a lot of different reasons. Turns out that lupus is the most common uh, of rheumatic diagnoses that gets admitted to the uh, ICU. And that why do they get admitted? It's usually for sepsis. So again, of 80 patients admitted in this one study to the ICU, 42% for lupus, 26% for RA, 12% vasculitis. And again, sepsis was the big reason, 31%. Uh, CHF was about 10%. 20% died in the ICU. Um, 5% died after the ICU, 7.5% died within one year. The overall mortality, should one of your patients go into the ICU, could be as high as 32% in the next um, year. Scary numbers. Um, Taiwan looked at the risk of um, what happens when um, uh, sepsis is seen in with lupus. So they looked at hospitalized patients, over 800,000 um, uh, and hospitalized for sepsis. If those, if anyone in that cohort had a diagnosis of lupus, it increased the mortality risk threefold. And then after they made adjustments, it was still a 50% increased mortality. And this was higher than other factors known to influence um, sepsis mortality in the hospital, such as age, prednisone use, methotrexate, and immunosuppressive use. Finally, we saw the results of one of these sequential uh, rituximab, belimumab studies. This is called the BEAT lupus study. We talked about this at ULAR. It was published this week in Annals of, of Internal Medicine. As you know, this is a small pilot study that had the strange primary endpoint of lowering double-stranded DNA titers. But it's a small study, 52 patients, and they were randomized to either receive rituximab followed by Belimumab infusions or rituximab followed by um, uh, nothing, which would be placebo. And it turns out those who received the sequential rituximab belimumab had significant lowering of their double-stranded DNA titers by 70%, and they had a significant lowering of the risk of future severe flares of their lupus as measured by BILAG A. So will we see more of these? You know, we talked about this before, the SynBio study. There was another study, I'm blanking on the name, from San Francisco that was complicated by background use of cytoxan. But there's a number of these sequential use studies. You know, belimumab didn't work, works, you know, a little bit in lupus. Some of you think a lot. I don't think so. Uh, rituximab didn't work in lupus. Well, if you give rituximab, you get a rebound in BAF. And maybe that's why you get flares after that or why it doesn't work, which is maybe great rationale for giving the anti-BAF drug Belimumab. But we just have preliminary studies here. We need larger, well-controlled trials to make this a standard of care, even in your most difficult and refractory of lupus patients. Uh, you know, regenerative medicine, we might as well call it hocus-pocus medicine. You know, stem cell injections with fat cells from someone's butt going into their shoulder. I'm sorry, this is shameful what we're seeing. There's a new report that was in JAMA this week about platelet-rich plasma, PRP injections and ankle osteoarthritis. is a 100-patient study. Why? Well, about 3 to 4% of uh, adults have ankle or tibiotalar OA. Interestingly, ankle OA more commonly affects younger individuals. 
And there's not a lot you can do in younger individuals, right? I mean, you don't want to do surgery when they're 19, 20, 31. You'd like to have a non-interventional, non-surgical approach. And maybe that's why they're messing around with this. But this was a well-designed blinded uh, control trial. They either received PRP or placebo over a 26-week period. And both groups got better to the same degree, about 10, 11 points. Hence, there was no significance between the groups. Yet another regenerative trial that crashes and burns as they should. Uh, I think the big news for me this week was uh, hearing from Pfizer and Lilly that they were pulling their nerve growth factor inhibitor called tenizumab. This follows in the footsteps of other companies that tried to get into this area, this therapeutic area, but backed out because there were a lot of problems with side effects and dysesthesias, but really rapid progression of osteoarthritis leading to joint replacement. These put the, put these, those events put those studies on hold. FDA had to have a hearing. They started back in the studies. And as you know, in March, the FDA had a hearing and they didn't do so well. They kind of, the panel voted against approval of the drug in this past month the ema the chmp had a negative dis, um, uh, recommendation a non-recommendation for approval to the ema so uh, with this in mind both lily and um, pfizer who are co-developing the drug have backed out and the problem here is that first off they should be applauded spending 10 years and a lot of money trying to develop this drug because in osteoarthritis we have a tremendous unmet need, you know, 54 million Americans. And what's your best therapy, by the way? Oh, yeah, acetaminophen. Um, you're not allowed to use anything else, and joint injections don't work, and narcotics are, are, are a nay-nay. And my goodness, we need help here. Um, it's sad that this is not, has not worked out. So I want to end with a discussion of family history. Um and yeah, I don't like family history. I think it's totally useless for almost everything. That's another discussion. I'm talking about like father, like daughter. I heard this week about one of our Room Now faculty, Maral El Ramahi. I met Ramal at the Cleveland Clinic during her fellowship. She's been a faculty reporter for Room Now and done a fabulous job. Uh, I heard this week that her father died, uh, Kamal El Ramahi. Uh, uh, Dr. El Ramahi was a rheumatologist for a long time in Indiana, uh, well-known in his community, well-respected by everyone, a great father-daughter pair of rheumatologists. I'm mesmerized by this thought. Um, I read about Dr. Ramahi uh, in his passing, and there was a great line in there that he was a man um, characterized by sacrifice, strength, love, charity, patience, dedication, integrity, and faith. I should hope that those words are used in my final days. Nothing about, you know, prior authorizations and all the great medical things he did. It was about the man and what a man he was to his family, his friends, and his community. Um, so it's always a sad thing when we lose a great rheumatologist. It's even sadder when it's a friend's family member. But I like the words, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Um, you know, uh, and Ramal has done well early on in her career, and she'll continue to do well. And it's great that she's had that guidance for so long. Um, I looked up, you know, who amongst us follows in the footsteps of their parents. I saw one study that said the, the careers where it most likely happens, steelworkers, bakers, lawyers, and yes, doctors. 
Um, I'm glad my father wasn't a steel worker. Um, well, then I, I might have been like Rudy in the movie Rudy. That's another story. It is a wonderful thing, however, to follow in the footsteps of your parents. If I had followed in the footsteps of my parents, I'd be a stay-at-home dad. No, I'm only kidding. Um, my parents were, uh, my father was a teacher. My mother was a secretary. But I've always been envious of classmates of mine who had doctors as parents. I thought that they had a jump on me. Um, I was late to the game. Um, the party had started without me, whereas they seemed to have an advantage. They grew up in a medical household and I did not. So I've had to work harder, but I always thought that was special. Uh, when you look at the numbers, um, you look at med school classes, one in five of med school students have a parent who's a doctor. If you look at medical school applicants and who gets in, if your father or your mother were a doctor, you have a 14% higher chance of getting into medical school. So is that, you know, nepotism? Is this occupational inheritance or is this just like-minded family members following into careers of passion, being passionate about the career? So I want to end with a like father, like son, like father, like daughter, like mother, like daughter. And there's a lot of us out there who have parents in the field of rheumatology, or you yourself are a parent. First one I met in my career when I was a fellow was Oren Traum. He went into practice with his dad, Nathan, in Southern California, and they worked together for a while before his dad passed away. One of my residents from Parkland, Dr. Yui Holt, went to Memphis to join his father in a rheumatologist in practice. We all know about Dr. Lenny Calabrese and Cassie Calabrese, now at the Cleveland Clinic, um, two great teachers and researchers. Um, in my training in New York, I got to know Dr. Harry Spira and later on his son, Dr. Robert Spira at HHS in New York City. Um, there's Dr. Manesh Jain and his father in Ravenswood, Illinois. There's a lot actually from Illinois. Eric Ruderman and his dad were rheumatologists. Bill Arnold and his daughter, Erin Arnold. I guess there's more. In the great state of Louisiana, there's... Um, my good friend Larry Broadwell and his son Aaron, most of you know. Dr. Lee Simon from Boston, his daughter went into, rheumatologist, into rheumatology. That's Dr. Alexa Mira, and she's now in Ohio and doing very well. Dr. Shahida, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Shahida Kwayumi and her daughter Seema Frosh are both rheumatologists. Dr. Ann Takex and her daughter Libby Ray. Dr. David and Megan Greenfield. Dr. Perry Rush and Rafi, also known as Raphael Rush in Canada, are good friends. Um, Dr. Hassan Yaziki from Turkey did his training at Special Surgery in New York, and his son followed in his footsteps, our good friend Yusuf Yaziki. My buddy Sergio Schwartzman, also at HHS, and his daughter Monica went into rheumatology. Dr. W.L. and Kristen Griffin, Dr. David and Jennifer Neschel, Paul Plotz from the NIH, and his uncle Charlie Plotz from Brooklyn. Dr. Gary Sturba and his daughter, Janet Rakovchik. Dr. Sari Aristi and both of her parents are rheumatologists. Dr. Rachel Wolf and both her parents are rheumatologists. Alan Baer's father was a rheumatologist. And brothers, Brian Dyke and David Dyke, all rheumatologists. You know, family is gigantically important in our lives. It should be first in our lives. Being in rheumatology is like being in a family. Imagine if your parent or your child were also a rheumatologist. Oh, what a wonderful world it would be.
While there is great hope that an understanding of biomarkers will benefit rheumatoid arthritis patient management, there are but a few biomarkers shown to be both diagnostic and prognostic. Researchers have suggested that RA patients who test positive for specific autoantibodies may express higher disease activity, which could impact treatment strategies, but most practitioners generally use these results only for diagnostic purposes. Bristol-Myers Squibb is investigating treatment outcomes in a unique patient population, patients who tested positive for these antibodies, which together are associated with higher disease activity. Rheumatologists may want to consider these biomarker-driven results when considering treatment options. To learn more, please visit rabiomarkers.com.